I'm replacing the first 2 minutes and 15 seconds of audio from the presentation done yesterday because the sound booth somehow or other missed it. Reading from Joel 2, verses 12 through 17, And even now, declares Yahweh, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and wailing. Rend your hearts and not your garments, and return to Yahweh your God, because he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and great in loyal love, and relenting from harm. Who knows whether he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, an offering and a libation for Yahweh your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify fast, call an assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly, assemble the elders, gather the children, even those who are breastfeeding. Let the bridegroom come from his private room and the bride from her canopy. Between the colonnade and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of Yahweh, weep, and let them say, Take pity, Yahweh, on your people. Do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the nations, Where is their God? And of course, uh, Joel is referring to the complete destruction that was experienced in Joel chapter 1 by this continual cycle of the locust, just hatching out of the ground, changing into adults, laying eggs, the eggs uh, turning into larvae, and starting the whole process all over again. And every stage of this cycle, we're told in Joel chapter 1, they were devouring the earth. They were devouring every vegetation. They were either eating away at the roots or they're eating away at the leaves uh, or they're getting ready to breed again. And this was pretty much a a continuous cycle of destruction. And yet in Joel chapter 2, we're presented with a greater judgment that is to come. Now, again, in Joel 1, there's the type, there were different type of locusts and different life cycle. In fact, is in this chart here, you can see that basically it's uh, maybe the months of May through August that uh, there's not a lot of locust activity because they've gone underground. But the rest of the year, uh, different uh, stages of locust activity were available, and everyone was affected. Drunks were told to weep because they'd have no wine. Uh, worship was interrupted because they couldn't give the grain offerings and the drink offerings that were prescribed. Uh, there were people who were destitute of their food because of this judgment of locusts that had come upon the land that we read about in Joel chapter they 1. They bring a small offering to the temple. They're, they're basically destitute of all substance that came in. And so in today's passage, we, we move to this kind of a call to repent in Joel 2, verses 12 through 17. And the key verse is verse 13, where it says, Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and resents from or relents from sending calamity. And so he's telling us that we need a true inward repentance and uh, that we are accompanied, it needs to be accompanied by outward acts. The problem is, is a lot of times people try to repent by just going through the motions on the outside, which is why it doesn't say rend your garments, which is what Jews did. Jews would tear their garments when they heard something. I was reading in the New Testament this last week, and at one of the statements that Jesus made, the Pharisees tore their garments because they thought he had committed blasphemy. And yet what God really wants is not so much for us to tear our clothes, but for us to or put on sackcloth and ashes. It's for us to genuinely repent in our heart. Now, we in Joel 1, we have this uh, basically natural disaster of the locust. But in Joel 2, the first half of Joel 2 that we covered last week, 
talked about the fact that the locusts and the drought that accompanied it and the fact they didn't have any food and the locusts were an overwhelming force and there was nothing they could do to stop it. Uh, and these were, by the way, curses that were prescribed in the law in Deuteronomy 28. He says, you'll carry out much seed to the field, but you'll gather little produce for the locusts will devour it. Uh, and he says, all the trees and fruit of the land shall the locusts consume. These were curses that God had already promised upon uh, the nation of Israel had they not done something. So the efforts of men here were were useless. And, and with the drought, farmers would dig into the ground, find the seeds ungerminated and unsprouted. And so we have a, a, a real uh, issue that's going on here. But the significance of all of this is that Joel says in the first half of chapter two that a coming judgment is going to be even worse. Um, I read you some quotes last week about how uh, there was 10 miles on either side of the river and 89, 80 to 90 miles in breadth or 16 to 1800 square miles. It says that the whole surface of the earth could be said to be covered with locusts. You actually couldn't see the ground through it. So there was just this overwhelming uh, destruction. Uh, we, we read last week how that there were 24,000 billions of insects and weighed 42 that millions of tons. Uh, so this is just an amazing thing that you and I really can't even comprehend in terms of the amount of destruction that was there. So God says the locusts are just a precursor to the coming day of the Lord and get ready for that because it's really going to be a horrific judgment. Now we get to the second half of Joel 2 verses 12 through 17 and, and he tells us we need a real repentance. We need genuine repentance. And we have to learn how to obey the commands of God toward his people. And he's saying that if we were to genuinely repent, he doesn't guarantee it. He doesn't promise it. But he says, if we are to repent, then there's a good chance that God will relent of his judgment, that God will um show mercy and compassion instead of bringing judgment. But there's several things that we need to see. So first of all, in verse 12, is that real repentance requires a turning from sin to the Lord. Uh, I'm sure all of you have probably done something like this. Let's say that you decide that you're going to get on a diet and you're going to get healthy and you're going to lose a little weight. And so, yeah, you say, I'm going to get on a diet. But then you, you see the chocolate cake that somebody left sitting out on the counter. And so, you know, you try to resist it at first. And then after a while, you think, well, it's, you know, if I eat it now, then it'll be gone and I won't be a temptation tomorrow. So you, you rationalize it and you decide that you're going to do that instead. Uh, so you, maybe you rationalize that you're going to do something. Or maybe you, you eat it and then you feel bad and you say, oh, God, forgive me. I was trying to die. So I my temple be better equipped for you. And as a result for that, I should have, I should have stayed on the diet and I didn't. And I, I, you know, God, please forgive me. Uh, please, you know, forgive me for what I've done. And that's, that's kind of what we, we often decide to do. Uh, we just, we ask God to forgive us. And yet sometimes we ask God to forgive us of our sins when we know full and well that the next time we get the opportunity to sin again, we're going to take advantage of it. It's like uh, men who 
uh, have a problem with pornography. They they engage in pornography. They feel bad. They ask God to forgive them, but they still don't delete the images off their hard drive, or they don't uh, they don't block the websites. They don't uh, password protect their computer from getting to it and give only their wives the the password to unlock a specific site. They, in other words, it's kind of like, well, I'm asking God to forgive me, but you're going to go right back to it again. Kind of like the dog going back to its vomit, to use a, a biblical phrase. So repentance requires a turning from sin uh, to the Lord. And uh, he says, uh, verse 12, and even now declares Yahweh, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and wailing. So it's a, to return to me means that you have to turn away from the wrong thing you're going toward and you turn back toward uh, the Lord. So there's kind of a cause and effect relationship here. Uh, the day of the Lord is coming. That's the cause. And as an effect of us knowing that, we should right now uh, turn to God. That's the effect. So there's a change in direction. By the way, the same Hebrew word for uh, return um, is this idea, it says, and when Pharaoh released the people, God did not lead them the way of the land of the Philistines, though it was near, because God said, let the people change their mind when they see the war and return to Egypt or come back to Egypt. All right. And by the way, I'm still hearing a little background noise, which is fine. I can ignore that. But if it if it bothers you there, it's because of a mic that's that's there. So I'll just let you guys know that. Okay. So repentance without a directional change just isn't real to begin with. It's uh, more than just confessing your sins and asking you for forgiveness. For one thing, you have to have genuine sorrow over your sins. Uh, you have to ask for, for you know, forgiveness, but you have to have genuine sorrow to the point that you know how much your sin has broken the heart of your Father in heaven and you realize you don't want to hurt your father anymore. And so you want to turn away from those things and walk in obedience with God. Uh, I can remember one of my kids when they were young writing me a letter and saying that the, the thing that that child feared the most was of disappointing me. And that's really the way we should be with our Heavenly Father. We should have this idea that... We don't want to disappoint our father. He loves us. He's crazy about us. He's there every time we need him. He's taking care of us. He gave up his only truly begotten son to die for us so that we could spend an eternity with him. You know, what kind of love is that? It's amazing. And we shouldn't want to grieve the heart of God. And then I now, John the Baptist in Luke chapter three, was, when he know, was preaching, and I would have loved to have heard him preach because he was, you know, I'm sure a powerful preacher. Uh, he was a formidable uh, person. Uh, you you couldn't you couldn't not notice John when he was around. You know he's he's dressed in in camel hair and he's eating locust of all things and uh, dipped in honey and uh, now and then while he was preaching. But John the Baptist said that if you really repent, there should be some fruits that accompany that repentance. And so in Luke 3, he begins to list some of these fruits that you might call the fruit of repentance. And so he gives it to him in greater detail. Uh, for one, he said, because John the Baptist calls them to repent, and then he gives them some examples. Uh, for one, if you repent, you should have acts of compassion. 
uh, they asked him, says, well, you know, how do we repent? He says, well, he said to them, the one who has two tunics must share with the one who does not have one, and the one who has food must do likewise. So the first thing he says is use what you have to bless others. Um, one of the real interesting ways that you and I can know that we are walking with the Lord in the way that we should is that we should have uh, acts of compassion. We should look for people who are in need, and then we find ways of meeting it. And then in verses 12 through 13, he, he says you need to have honesty in business. Now, the tax collectors were always cheating people. And it says, and tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what you're ordered to. Because they always collected a little extra, and uh, they they stockpiled it. And, of course, you'll remember the story of Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector. And when he got saved, the first thing he wanted to do is go return not only the money that he had stolen from people by overtaxing them, but to return an extra amount. Because that was a perfect example of someone who had truly, truly repented. And that's the way we should be, is that our repentance should should change our, our behavior. And then uh, John the Baptist also said, you needed justice and contentment. Uh, there were some soldiers who came to John the Baptist. They wanted to be baptized. And they said, what should we also do? And he said to them, extort from no one, do not blackmail anyone, and be content with your pay. So he says, you know, quit to be just. Don't take uh, bribes to put people in jail or to get people out of jail. Uh, don't extort from anybody. Don't blackmail anybody. And make sure that that uh, you're content with what God has given you, what you have already. And then in verse 13, we get to the key passage here. Uh, I'll read it with verse 12. And it says, and even now, declares Yahweh, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and wailing, rend your hearts and not your garments, and return to Yahweh your God, because he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and great in loyal love, and relenting from harm. Now, I hope you can see there the repetition of the word heart, because in that day and time, as I already mentioned, it was very common that when you repented, you wanted everybody to know it, because I think you were more concerned about impressing people with your religious piety than you were with impressing God. And when God looks at us, I know he can see our outward manifestations, but what he really sees is the heart. And this is one of the reasons you and I have to be very careful to not judge by people's appearances. Now, as a Christian, I want to have the, a clean-cut appearance because I want to represent Christ well. And it makes a difference in our society uh, whether your you know your hair is kept properly and your clothes are kept properly and you're wearing clothes in the manner which they were intended to be worn and our uh, we we make a first impression based on how we dress and how we groom and that is still important because you want to make a good first impression so that you have the opportunity of sharing the gospel with people but when God looks at us. Uh, he mainly is looking at the heart attitudes that are often reflected in the way we dress and the way we keep ourselves, etc. And but back then, Jews would take they they get their garment and they pull it apart, they rip it to show, oh, I'm in grief. And so the, there was a time when Jesus made a statement that 
It, had he not been God, it would have been blasphemous, but because he was God, it wasn't blasphemy. But the Jews, the Pharisees particularly that were around him, they took their garments and they ripped them to shreds to show that they were in shock and awe because they thought blasphemy had been committed in their midst. Uh, but what Joel is telling us here is that true and heartfelt sorrow is far more important to God than these external actions of, you know, putting on sackcloth and ashes or tearing your clothes or getting on your knees or throwing yourself on your floor. It doesn't mean that that our uh, we shouldn't get on our knees. Uh, I think it's a good thing for us to pray on our knees or pray lying on the floor sometimes to show our humility to God. But God sees what's in our heart, and so we we shouldn't be doing things as a matter of ritual, uh, we should be doing them because they're heartfelt. It's just like I, as a Baptist, a lot of Baptists don't raise their hands when they're when they're praising the Lord. I have no problem with doing that. What I have a problem with doing is I've been in charismatic worship services where I was often asked to speak, and I have a problem when someone else looks down on you because you don't have the outward act of lifting your hands. And people say, well, if you don't do that, you're not really a Christian. You you haven't had the second blessing. You blah, blah, blah. But what God sees is our hearts. We need to rend our hearts before the Lord and, and make a true thing. Now, I notice here it says the Lord our God. It's interesting, um, and I apologize that my voice dictation didn't work here. The phrase the Lord our God is used 263 times just in the book of Deuteronomy, and I'll fix that slide later. But it's used 263 times just in the book of Deuteronomy. It refers to the covenant relationship that God has with his people. And uh, Joel uses this when he says, return to Yahweh your God or the Lord your God, depending on which version you're reading. Uh, he gives us a motivation for genuine repentance. And I've highlighted it here in yellow. He gives us more than one motivation, but this is the first one. He says, rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to Yahweh your God because he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and great and loyal love in relenting from harm. He says, you need to, re to, to repent with genuine heartfelt repentance because, and here's the reason, God is gracious. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's great in loyal love. That's the Hebrew word uh, hesed, which means loving kindness. I like that word too and he relents from harm. So the, here's the reason. God is good. God loves us. He's kind. He's compassionate. That ought to motivate us to repent. Now, it's interesting because I recently had a discussion with one of you, and, and it was a good discussion, uh, but there are times that I think some Christians are prone to take for granted um, God's forgiveness. So uh, some people think that because we teach, uh, and I think it's right uh, to teach this because I believe the Bible teaches this, that once I was genuinely born again, I, I have eternal life, and it will I will never perish, and it's never taken away from me. And no man, including myself, can pluck me out of the hand of Jesus, and no man, including myself, can pluck me out of God's hand. What he does, he does forever that men should fear before him. And yet we have to be careful that we don't take that doctrine to such an extreme that we can say, oh, well, now that my ticket's punched and I'm going to heaven, I can do anything I want to. 
because the kindness and the mercy that God has shown me by letting Jesus Christ die for my sins should be my source of motivation for living a godly and righteous life. In other words, how could I do that which displeases the Father that gave up his only begotten Son on the cross of Calvary for me? That This is a big deal, and, and it's a really big deal. Uh, and so that's our motivation. Now, he goes on, and he asks a question we'll get to in a moment. He says, who knows whether he'll turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? So in other words, you know, maybe God will not judge us if we repent. It's not guaranteed. But the real motivation here for our repentance is just the goodness and the kindness of God, and we need to really take that. Now, in the previous slide, you'll notice it, it, it asks this question, who knows whether he will turn and relent? Uh, other verses might say whether he will repent and relent. Uh, and there are passages in the Bible, particularly if you're reading the King James Version, that will use the word repent, meaning that God repented of the judgment that he was about to bring on people. So we, we need to talk about uh, these words to to repent and relent, and does God really do that? Uh, so first of all, God, uh, Malachi tells us that that the Lord says, I am and I change not. Uh, one thing you can count on every single day, I, you know, I, I get up some mornings, it's sunny outside, sometimes the clouds are gray. I can't always count on it to be sunny. Um, some mornings I get up and I feel good enough to get up and go to work. Other days I get up and I'm just in such pain that I can't count on when I go to bed at night what my reaction to tomorrow will be. So there's a lot of these things that I can't count upon. Uh, however, the one thing I can count on is that uh, God never changes. Uh, you know, I, the only person more reliable than my than the loyalty and love that my wife has for me is the the love that God has for me, because it never wavers, even even for a moment. So obviously, He doesn't change. So can you really say that God relents? In other words, He changes His mind. And also, we can't say that he repents because God has no sin in him. Uh, we're, it's made very clear to us in, in John and in James both that, that in him there is no darkness at all. Uh, so there's absolutely no sin, no iniquity in God. He's absolutely righteous. He's absolutely holy. So what does the Bible mean when it uses these terms repent and relent? Because maybe those are the best terms that that we have to describe it. It means that... When God is sending judgment, he He always, almost always, now not always, I'll talk about that in a minute, but he almost always allows for the possibility that when man repents, that that, that person, that, those people, that nation, might avoid calamitous judgment. Uh, the fact is, God doesn't delight in whooping his children. Uh, I have kids, it's been a long time since I've had to, to take out the love hand, as we call it, and use it on their backside. Uh, but I used to do that consistently when they were young. And if you do it consistently when they're young, you wind up not having to do it very often as long as the child knows you're consistent. But at no time did I ever say to myself, oh, goody, I am so glad he disobeyed. It's been a whole eight days since I've given a whooping and my hand was itching. Now, we don't ever do that. Uh, we don't like 
I, I would rather that my kids wanted to play games with me or go to the disc golf course with me or uh, talk to me. Uh, I, I like it when my girls stay up late sometimes and have girl talk with me. Uh, I enjoy that. Uh, I'd much rather do that than to than to have to call them in to correct them. Uh, that breaks my heart when that becomes uh, necessary. And so, I, you know, God delights in being merciful to his people, and he's con- so consistent in doing so that it testifies to his faithful and, and gracious character. It's a motivation for us to turn to him in repentance. In Genesis 6, when you hear the uh, judgment of God about to put the whole world in a flood except for those eight people, he gave Moses 120 years from the time he says, I'm going to send judgment until the time that the first raindrops came out of the skies, uh, and nobody had ever seen rain prior to that time. He gave 120 years for the for mankind to repent. Now, that's a long time for an evil world to hear the message. And we know, uh, by the way, because Peter's going to tell us this, and it's going to be in, in the sermon this morning, that Noah was called by Peter a preacher of righteousness because while he's building that ark, and I don't know if he started the instant God told him, and so it took him 120 years to construct this, and maybe he started by himself, and then his kids joined him as they got older. I don't, or I don't know if he waited till the kids were of a certain age, then they all worked on it together. I'm not sure how any of that actually played out because the Bible leaves out some details that. I'm looking forward to seeing on Heaven's Rewind wheel, uh, reel, and and see how that actually took place. Uh, but I do know that Moses was called a preacher of righteousness because he preached to the sinful world that was around him, and he called for them to turn to him in repentance. God loves for us to repent. So what it really means is that every time God plans judgment, every time he decrees judgment, he leaves open a predetermined possibility that he will either forgive someone of their sins or lessen the judgment that they were going to have. There were instances in the history of Israel where God promised a judgment, and then when the king and the people repented, God says, well, I'm still going to judge you, but I'm going to give you your choice between these two judgments. You know, do you want a plague that gets it over with quickly, or do you want a war that's going to take people away slowly and, you know, might give them judgment? But there's also times that God um, still, even though maybe he lets his people go into captivity, he gives them um gives them something to grant them hope. Uh, And sometimes God just, you know, he promises judgment, but then he says, you know, if you repent, it's not going to happen to you. So when the Lord doesn't repent and relent in the sense that he changes his mind, what it means is that he always plans for the possibility that his people can repent and avoid some of that judgment. Now, I think it's interesting uh, in that, He says here in Joel chapter 2, who knows whether the Lord will relent of his judgment? Uh, In other words, this is kind of a rhetorical question, but it's still an important question nonetheless. And I think it's important for us to understand that if we do repent, it's no guarantee that we won't get the consequences of our own sin. Uh, One of the things my dad used to tell me was that God doesn't always punish us but he often allows us to have the consequences of our own action. 
a little bit dry this morning in my throat, so you'll pardon me if I take a drink once in a while. So uh, I've, I've done this with my own children. There have been times that I could have uh, issued uh, punishment. Uh, there were other times, though, that rather than me punishing them, I just I had to make them live with the consequences of their own actions. Uh, the old saying when I was growing up is you made your bed, now lie in it. And the idea is that when you make a decision, you need to be willing to accept the consequences of your actions and the responsibility that comes with that. Um, God does not always remove the consequences of, of our action. He doesn't always do that. Um, for example, in 2 Samuel twelve twenty two. We see this uh, concept uh, displayed because David, uh, you remember David committed the sin with Bathsheba. Uh, he tries to cover up his sin, which is our natural reaction, and he did so by inviting Uriah the Hittite home from battle, thinking that while Uriah was in town, he would go spend uh, the moment with his uh, uh, wife, and then he could fool everybody into believing that the baby was the result of uh, Uriah and Bathsheba coming together. And um, in reality, uh, what what had happened was that, you know, he, he refused to go home and be with his wife while his men were out on the battlefront fighting the Philistines. And so in a, an act of nobility, he slept in a tent outside of his own home. And so David couldn't cover it up anymore, but he has Uriah pushed to the front of the line. Other people fall back. And Uriah is killed. So now he's committed adultery and murder. And then a child, uh, Bathsheba becomes pregnant with a child. And when the child was born, very quickly got sick with something that, that looked like it was going to be fatal. So David fasted and he prayed and he wept. And he, he obviously changed his physical appearance because everybody in the palace knew that he was weeping. And then when the child died, uh, he went back to putting on normal clothes and, and everybody thought, you know, you did this backwards, David. Why didn't you wear normal clothes while you were praying and then weep when you're in sorrow because your child's died? And David's response was, when the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept because I thought, who knows? Yahweh may have mercy on me that this child will live. So David was praying for God's mercy to be on the child so that the child would live and yet that didn't happen. So we don't know. In Jonah, uh, Jonah, of course, is, uh, prophesies coming judgment to the people of Nineveh. And when he makes that prophecy, Jonah's mad because the Ninevites are, you know, people of a different race and a, a different group of people. He didn't really want anything to do with them, and they were godless people. But he had to. He tried to avoid going there, and as you know, he he got uh, a special delivery by having a a well barf him up on the the coast so that of Nineveh. And of course, it's interesting because uh, people saw this that he was coughed up on on. Uh, the coast by a whale or a great fish. And they actually, in, in Nineveh, their god was a giant fish, and they worshipped this giant fish and offered offerings to it. So obviously when a giant fish coughs up a man who comes and brings them a message, they're going to listen. And then the message was, no, there is a one true God, and you've, you've got to repent. 
And the leaders of the town say, who knows, God may relent and change his mind and turn from his blazing anger so that we will not perish. And everybody fasted, everybody prayed, everybody put on sackcloth and ashes, and even the animals weren't fed for a certain number of days as a sign of their national or statewide mourning and repentance to God. And in that case, God did not judge the, the nation of Nineveh. Uh, of course, <laughs> it's kind of interesting. And the prophet got a little judgment because he went out and sat under a vine, hoping that uh, he could watch the destruction of Nineveh. And when he didn't, and he got bitter, well, God destroyed the vine, and then Jonah's open to the, the to the sun. So, so they they can only hope. Joel tells the people, you know, who knows if the Lord's going to repent of his judgment. You, you know, we might avert the disaster. Our crops might be restored. And then we'd have what we needed to give a grain offering and a drink offering again. And how wonderful would that be if if we could do that? So it was an important question to ask, you know, what if God were to repent? Now, it also mentions here uh, in the last part of, of chapter 2 and verse 13, it says he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, great in loyal love, and relenting from harm. Um, so two things I want to point out. Let's deal with the anger issue first. Uh, you've, I'm sure you've heard me say, if you've listened to me long at all, that anger is a sin. Uh, anger is one letter short of danger, uh, and a lot of people say, well, there's righteous anger. But James tells us in James chapter 1, the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. Uh, and we're told in Ephesians that we're to put away all anger and malice and, and hatred and bitterness and uh, all these things. We're to put it away because they're all wrong. They're all bad. Um, the difference is that God can be um, anger and be righteous because he has no sin in him. And the purpose of anger is vengeance. And the Bible says, vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. So he's allowed to get vengeance because he's defending his own holy and righteous character. I am incapable of having righteous anger because my flesh gets in it. Uh, I, I think of, you know, how I would like to judge somebody. And, and usually it's not something that really communicates the compassion and love of God. So the Lexham English Bible translates it correctly here when it says he's slow to anger, but it says he's relenting from harm. I think in the King James Version, it, it uses the word evil instead of harm. And we just need to be very clear if you're reading one of those translations that has the word evil in it, that it, it's not saying that God is going to do evil. Evil if you see it used in, the, in a version of the Old Testament in the Bible, it's referring to coming judgment. In other words, uh, an, an, an enemy attacking us would be an evil thing. That would be a bad thing. Uh, so when we say evil comes upon us, uh, you might think about the riots going on throughout the United States right now. I don't think any of us can deny that that's evil. Uh, these are people not who are protesting peaceably about what they consider to be racial injustices, but these are people who are throwing rocks through the windows and stealing things, and they're basically lawless to the point that downtown Seattle for several weeks was under a, a police-free zone, and it was under uh, amoral people. And by the way, during that whole time that there were no police in downtown Seattle, rapes went up in that area, murders went up in that area. Uh, child molestation went up in that area. It wasn't just that they were 
protesting against racism, and so they didn't want cops around because they saw cops as the evil people here. The reality is, is they they wanted a lawless society without consequences, and the consequence was that sin rose at an, an alarming rate. So when the Bible says something about God doing evil, it's talking about bringing physical disaster or, or economic disaster among people. And the only way to avert such a disaster is to turn the Lord in heartfelt repentance, and that's crucial. Now, you'll notice that the language that that uh, Joel uses is very similar to what God says in Exodus 34. It says, and Yahweh passed over before him, and he proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, God, who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding with loyal love and faithfulness, keeping loyal love to thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, and he does not leave utterly unpunished, punishing the guilty of fathers, the guilt of fathers on sons and on the sons of sons on third and fourth generations. Um, this is where in Exodus chapter three, or excuse me, thirty-four, God is proclaiming His own name. And he's basically saying, my name is I am, or I'm the great self-existent one. I'm the eternally self-existent one. I'm Yahweh. Uh, and that's what the word Yahweh means, by the way. And in, in Hebrew, it's just four letters, uh, which we would transliterate as Y-H-W-H. And we've we put vowel sounds to it, as Brother Stephen explained a few weeks ago. And so we say Yahweh, or if you take the vowel sounds from Adonai and put them under the consonants for Yahweh, we would get Yehoah, from which we get Jehovah. Um, so, but it but it means the eternally self-existent one. In other words, he he's always been, and he will always be. He never had a beginning or an end. Um, but you notice this is the Lord proclaiming His own name, and the Lord is describing Himself. Now, I would like to think that I could give you a more accurate description of myself than anyone else can give of me, because I'm the only person that truly knows what's in my heart and mind. Now, my sin nature probably makes me uncomfortable telling you all the things that are inside of me, so I might I might have a problem with that. Um, but the idea here is that God is telling us who he is, and he's proclaiming that. So it God is saying that he is good, and he is kind, and that ought to be a motivation for us to to want to follow him. Now, there's a second motivation for repentance, and that is God's reputation. So verses 15 through 17, Joel says, blow the trumpet in Zion. And by the way, look at all the commands that are here as I read this. A lot of different things he's telling the people that they need to do. Blow the trumpet, sanctify fast, call an assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly, get the old people together, get the children together, even the babies who are breastfeeding. Uh, let the bridegroom and the bride stop their honeymoon and come out uh, to participate in this uh, corporate repentance. Uh, he says, between the colonnade and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of Yahweh, be. he says, go to the temple, and there's a, there's a, the porch of the temple, and there's this outer courtyard. He says, fill up the outer courtyard with people who are there to weep uh, and to repent of national sins. And he even tells them what they ought to say. Let them say, take pity, Yahweh, on your people. Do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the nations where is their God? So uh, he says, when you pray, pray that God's reputation's not damaged, because if another nation comes in and takes over Israel and Judah, uh, what's going to happen is they're going to say that their God is a bigger, better God than the God of Israel and Judah. 
In other words, they're going to say that uh, their God beat up our God, and it's going to give the enemies of the Lord an occasion to blaspheme when there, in reality, is only one true God to begin with. So God's reputation is important to him, and this is a basis for us to pray. Now, you notice everybody is included, the elders, the infants, the priests, the ministers. Uh, everybody's to be gathered together to pray the Lord, even uh, newborn uh, babies are supposed to be there. Uh, brides and grooms are supposed to be there. This is to be a national act, and the need for repentance is just urgent, and we're to weep together. And this is what I really think uh, Steve suggested a few weeks ago in our Bible study, that it was time for our nation to to do this together, and I, I wholeheartedly uh, concur with that. I think it's time for a, a national uh, repentance that needs to, to be done. Uh, so uh we're to he tells the ministers okay it's going to start with you you guys need to be between the the porch and the altar and you need to be praying together and you need to um have this grief and, and humiliation uh in in public um so he commands them to weep and then he gives them specific words he actually you don't often have god telling us how to pray uh, he usually kind of leaves that to us. Now, the disciples once asked Jesus, you know, how should we pray? And he says, well, you ought to pray like this. He didn't say you had to pray these words, although we often repeat them in church. But he says you should pray like this. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and and." Uh, he says, let us forgive those who trespassed against us. And so he gives us this prayer, and I'll, I'll not quote the whole thing, but he basically gives us a sample. Uh, and if we were to study that sample, what's important is that the elements are in it. So we, we don't actually have to say, uh, our Father, hallowed be thy name. What we need to do is remember that God's name is holy. And maybe when we pray, we need to claim a specific name of God when we're praying, and we need to do that. Uh, but here he gives some specific wording. He says, first of all, you need to ask the Lord to spare his people. I think if we were to pray right now, we need to be praying for Christians in the United States that God would spare us from the coming judgment, uh, that he'd have compassion on us. And it would be nice if he'd spare our whole nation, but our nation doesn't deserve it. He, we need to pray that God would turn our nation back to him, but that he, he would at the same time spare his people. Now, by the way, a principle that I see throughout Scripture is that when God judges a nation, he still protects the righteous within the nation. And, and we'll talk more about that perhaps in the, the sermon that's later today. And then he says the leaders must ask God not to give his heritage or to be reproached by heathens or other nations. So the word heritage usually refers to property and land. So basically he says you need to pray that some other nation doesn't come in and take all of our property and our land away from us. Because you remember, land was given to individual tribes of Israel. And then each clan within the, each tribe was given an apportionment of land. And even if you sold that land, whenever the year of Jubilee came around, that land had to be freed and it went back to the original family to which it belonged. So it was important that you had a position that, was interminable. It, it went on for forever, basically. And here he's saying, don't give our land to these other nations. And and then he also says, don't let us be reproached. In other words, we don't want to be taunted or scorned, people mocking us because our God is weaker than their God. So they're appealing to God's reputation. 
And then the leaders also need to ask God to do these things so that other nations won't rule over God's people. That was important to him. So specific prayer requests that, that he gives. And then we're also told to expect kind of a sarcastic attack. In verse 17, he says, you know, if somebody else does come in and take over the nation, they're going to say that their God is greater than our God. And he says, why should people say that about the only true God? So uh, heathen nations would have claimed the victory of their God. And, of course, I, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is uh, when uh, the Philistines brought the Ark of God into the temple of Dagon, the next morning they come out and the god Dagon has fallen over and it's on its face before the Ark of the Covenant. And so they stand him up again and the next morning come in and the Dagon statue has fallen over and this time it's broken into pieces. And and that's when the Philistines realize, oh, wait a minute, the, the god that's uh, of Israel, the god that's with the Ark of the Covenant, is bigger, badder god than our god. And they said, we got to get this god out of our town. He makes us uncomfortable. Uh, they made him uncomfortable, literally, because they also had a plague of hemorrhoids and mice at the time, uh, not something you ever want to experience. So the reputation of God ought to be a key aim of our prayer life. When, when we're praying, we need to figure out how our uh, lives are affected, uh, how our life and our behavior affects God's reputation. So to sum up, what, what are we to do? Well, we're to rend our hearts in true repentance. In other words, we need to let our hearts be broken in sorrow for sins. We need to turn toward the Lord to walk in obedience so we can experience God's blessings. We need to quit putting off obeying God. It's kind of like, well, tomorrow I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what's right. You need to do it now. Uh, we should praise the Lord for the fact he's gracious and, and merciful. He's slow to anger. He has great kindness. Uh, we should obey God's commands to sanctify and, and fast and assemble with God's people. And then we should seek God individually and collectively to forgive us of our sins and to heal our nation. Now, I, I just want to bring up that uh, next time, I, I thought it was going to be this week, uh, uh, some folks had asked me a question about Joel 2.28 uh, because it's quoted in the book of Acts, and, and this is the verse. And it will happen afterward thus, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, and your elders will dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. So obviously I didn't get there today. We will address it in one of the next two weeks, depending on how far we get. But there's a lot of confusion over this uh, because there are a lot of people today who say that, you know, you need to, if you're not dreaming dreams and getting prophecies direct from God, that you're you're not being spiritual. And uh, so I want to deal with this verse and exactly how it's used in Scripture to to uh, basically deal away with, with that problem. All right, so we'll meet back in five minutes. And, and at that time, uh, Dennis will, will lead us in the song, Oh, Four Thousand Tongues to Sing. So we'll be back in five minutes. <laughs> 